0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The government wants a new public media entity up and running by next year, replacing TVNZ and RNZ, as we've heard often here on Media Watch this year. And it also wants to rejig the Māori media sector too. After the previous Minister of Māori Development's efforts two years ago were roundly rejected by much of the Māori media, including the former broadcaster who's now the minister in charge. But how all this would be bankrolled has been discussed only behind closed doors until they finally showed us the money in the budget this week. We'll look at that later in this programme. But first, three years ago in Paris, big tech and social media bosses pledged to eradicate online extremism in the Christchurch call. They say that atrocities which echo the March 15 massacre here now can't go viral anymore – the algorithms that amplify extremism on social media and radicalise people in the first place are still operating out of sight of any authority.
0: A social media crackdown in the wake of the Christchurch mosque attack stopped a US gunman from live-streaming the entire event. The 18-year-old shooter broadcasts his rampage in Buffalo for at least two minutes before it was cut off.
1: That was the news last Monday morning on talk station Today FM, following up on the white supremacist who shot and killed 10 people, most of them black, in Buffalo, New York State in the US a day earlier. And there were disturbing echoes there of the murder of 51 New Zealanders in Christchurch in March 2019, including a so-called manifesto posted online by the killer, citing that attack as a personal inspiration. Indeed, that document reportedly included entire passages from the paranoid one that was released by Brenton Tarrant three years ago, regurgitating tenets of the thoroughly racist and conspiracy-laden Great Replacement Theory. Our acting chief censor, Rupert Ablett-Hampson, acted swiftly to declare that document objectionable, making it illegal to possess or share in New Zealand, as his predecessor had done here back in 2019. But in another ugly echo of March 15 that year... The killer in Buffalo also streamed his attack online, as CNN's media correspondent Brian Stelter told his viewers that same day. A live stream that was posted on Twitch, the popular gaming streaming service. Now, Twitch says the video was removed within minutes, but some of the video clips and images are still circulating online. There are now calls for accountability uh, for social media firms, but the rot goes a lot deeper. You can't just blame one single social networking site and say that's the problem. The problem is a lot more complex. Now Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, was applauded for promptly disabling the grizzly broadcast so quickly as Today FM
0: reported here last Monday, including this. Internet New Zealand CEO Andrew Cushion says it could have been worse.
2: Uh, we, we see action being taken far faster and far more
1: comprehensively. It shows how far we've come after the Christchurch attacks here and, and New Zealand can take some pride for the leadership role we've taken. And there, Internet New Zealand's leader Andrew Cushon was talking about the Christchurch Call, a commitment by government and big tech companies to eradicate online extremism. Now, that was instigated by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and signed three years earlier to the day. And last Monday, the Prime Minister's special representative on the Christchurch Call, Paul Ash, told RNZ's Morning Report that the Christchurch Call had directly helped to stop the Buffalo atrocity and others from going viral online
3: six or seven months from the attack in Christchurch when there was an attempt at doing something very similar at a synagogue in Halle, Germany. Uh, We saw the crisis response measures implemented for the first time and it had a significant impact in slowing down the spread of the material. If we come forward to today, we can see that those tools are working at pace much more quickly than they did in, in previous instances.
1: Well, good to know that this kind of abuse of the internet by extremists, racists and terrorists can be foiled... But this week, the press in Christchurch revealed that some people online had been sending survivors of the Christchurch mosque massacre footage of the shooting in Buffalo, using anonymous social media accounts that appeared to have been set up just for that purpose. And social media content that radicalises people in the first place is still, it seems, spreading as fast and as easily as ever. Earlier this month, TVNZ's Breakfast Show reported this. Got the stats for you from the Centre
2: for Countering Digital Hate. It has found that YouTube ignored all of the 23 complaints made to them. The
3: other sites, not a lot better, Maddie. No, Facebook ignored 94% of its 125 complaints, and Twitter, worse, with 97% of its 105.
1: And the head of the Washington-based Centre for Countering Digital Hate, Imran Ahmed, told TVNZ Breakfast that major social media companies are still not enforcing their own terms of service for discriminatory content in spite of their commitments in the Christchurch call. In the wake of what happened in Christchurch two years Mm. ago, Mm. the platforms all made a solemn vow To the families of those people who had died, promising them that they would do
4: their utmost. And what we did was we did test what they've done in those two
1: years. So we wanted to, we reported this using their own platforms' reporting
0: tools when faced with extreme content, including glorification of the killer in in Christchurch.
5: Nine out of 10 times they failed to act.
1: And in the end, governments around the world, including ours, will have to force big tech to be better, Imran Ahmed told TVNZ pretty bluntly. Asking social media companies not to behave in a sort of greedy, selfish, lazy way haven't worked, because these are greedy, selfish, lazy companies, and that's why we need regulation. Now, listening to that on TVNZ's breakfast show was Yasser Shakib from the Islamic Council of New Zealand who said that the key to all this was the mathematical means by which extremism is amplified online. Because, you know, nobody
0: really talks about the algorithms of these social media companies. Mm. If you're somebody with a really ultra-right-wing perspective and you're, you know, you are searching these, you know, death to Islam and all these kind of things, then that algorithm is just going to keep amplifying more and more things that, you know, that
1: will basically, um, like, support your cause, so to speak, and, like, support your views. And later on TBNZ Breakfast Show, the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, identified exactly the same problem.
0: Now the next step for us are things like algorithm, transparency, uh, what happens with individuals who are radicalised online, how do we... Uh, how do we deter people from going down those, those wormholes that radicalise and the role that social media has to play in that.
1: Well, this week, David Shanks, who's just come to the end of five years as New Zealand's chief censor, told a global summit on social media run by the Centre for Countering Digital Hate in Washington about his experience of confronting online extremism here after March the 15th, 2019. We need a new approach. These things
2: are serious, very serious issues indeed, potentially threatening our way of life, our democracy, our very society, our cohesion as a society. And unless unless we grapple with those issues and make serious moves to address these fundamental architectural issues, we are facing a very serious situation indeed. It won't be easy. It will be hard. It will be expensive. But one thing the digital industry has is plenty of money. Thank you.
1: And in an interview with us last week, before the latest atrocity in Buffalo, New York, I asked David Shanks if everyone online is now still at the mercy of those algorithms which the social media giants keep shrouded in secrecy for their own interests.
2: So the March 15 attack really highlighted that graphically for the entire world. The live streaming of that attack activated the attention of the recommendation algorithms that the the platforms operate Automatically to provide um, recommendations of high engagement material. So in the aftermath of that horrendous attack, the platforms were effectively fighting their own machines, fighting their own AIs, doing what they were programmed to do, which is distribute um, material that people were reacting to and engaging with. Uh, the tech platforms are are growing in their awareness that there might be other vulnerabilities and other issues um, with how they operate their business. We don't know the detail of how the algorithms work and and to some extent the platforms also really don't fully understand how the algorithms work because they're self-learning and they're really just um, you know engaging with um, billions of interactions online and and adapting and evolving um, continuously. So the, the challenge in that space is huge, but I think you can turn it around and go, and how can we get better transparency around that? How can we figure out the functions that may be pushing people down rabbit holes of misinformation or, or pushing them to white supremacy type podcasts and material? And if you think about that, it's not too much different from where we got to with news media and how we approach, you know, powerful te- technologies such as radio, Uh, back in the day, which is, look, you've got a job to do, and it's really important that you have independence in in doing that job, but there are also some standards and some rules of the game that you need to abide by.
1: Yeah, and they they need to abide by their own terms of service, right, that they expect their customers to sign up to. They need to enforce those. By and large, they're not applying those terms of use consistently or, or at all, That was David Shanks, New Zealand's chief censor from 2017 until last week. And this week, a keynote speaker at a global summit on online harm at the Washington-based Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Now another observer of the impact that the internet's had on our lives in New Zealand over the years is Jordan Carter. He's the chief executive of Internet New Zealand, the non-profit umbrella group which campaigns for an open, effective but safe and secure internet for New Zealand. He's stepping down from that role shortly after almost a decade in charge. And three years ago this week, he was in Paris, alongside our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, her French counterpart Emmanuel Macron, and the bosses of the big tech and social media companies who all signed the Christchurch call. Now the goal of that, as we heard, was pretty bold, eradicating online extremism. But this week, new research from the Disinformation Project, part of Te Poonaha at the University of Auckland, concluded that just a dozen individuals at the occupation of Parliament recently created the online content that was most widely consumed out of all of the thousands of online posts and hundreds of hours of live stream footage created by hundreds of people participating. The ease of sharing and the power of the social media algorithm gave those people a much bigger audience than any New Zealand mainstream media outlet could deliver. And after the latest mass shooting that was aired online in the US this week, I asked the outgoing Internet New Zealand chief Jordan Carter if the opaque algorithms of the social media giants mean that the munch-vaunted aims of
5: the Christchurch call haven't actually achieved a whole lot in the end. But sometimes you need boldness to instigate action. And so I think it was fine for the call that came out of what happened in Christchurch to be a really clear line saying this kind of content should not be online. And it has helped push things back. You know, the the crisis protocol aspects of work that was done following up and getting those big players to really put some energy and some resources into responding faster and more effectively when things like this happen has made a difference. So I think it means that there's less rapid propagation and things are taken down more quickly. But does the fact that something so
1: similar has happened, uh, was able to get on a platform. We still have people with these manifestos, the Great replacement theory, all that is still all out there and there doesn't seem to be a great deal we can do. The Centre for Countering Digital Hate says, look, all these big names in tech are still not taking away Islamophobic posts, the sort of stuff that radicalises people in the first place. Have we just not made enough progress there? It's a big problem
5: and it relates to this broader um, fact about the mismatch between what the social media networks do which is sell advertising and persuasion and the social impact that they have, which has this feature of being able to radicalize people Um, because the fundamental business model of, of attention selling that they're doing lends itself to the kind of emotional processes that happen here. And even if you get the content down quickly, it still spreads within these subcommunities and tiny, obscure forums that you're never going to be able to get completely on top of. Right? That's kind of the nature of the internet: this broad set of distributed platforms. So we're getting better at dealing with it in the big ones, but we can't eliminate its circulation in some of the smaller places very easily. And the, you know, there's a bigger social problem. You know, it isn't just social media. Or internet forums where the scrape replacement theory is being talked about. Sometimes it's even in mainline politics, you know, something that the the Republican Party in the United States has begun to talk almost openly about.
1: Well, we've heard from David Chanks, who I guess, like you, has. Uh, just uh, stepping down from uh, several years of a a top job where he's had to wrestle with the impacts of online extremism and, you know, the compromises about a free and open internet and freedom of speech and all of that. Um, But he said, look, you know, this is the battleground now. Transparency over how they operate uh, would would help. But, I mean, will the big tech platforms, to them, it's the absolute golden goose, right? It's part of their business model, uh, the the Mm -hmm. way these algorithms work, and their control over them. Will we ever see them surrender or be forced to surrender or crack open algorithms to any other outside agency that might be able to you know, interfere with the way that they work in order to uh, at least attempt to reduce the harm they can
5: cause? If we don't see that, we're not going to solve the bigger problem. Um, and I don't mind if it's voluntary on their part um, or if it's mandated by regulation legislation. But in the end, transparency allows researchers, um, practitioners, government agencies, to at least begin to understand what the impact is of these algorithms. And the point is they're designed to harvest attention, right? To generate engagement with the platform. Turns out the way our brains work means that content that angers us is good at drawing our attention and getting us involved. And so I think that's what David was getting at when he said that the algorithmic amplification process does tend to promulgate content with that impact, get a shared understanding of what they're doing to various people and communities, then we can start to have a more mature and informed discussion about what to do about it. Transparency was one of the agenda items in the Christchurch call um, summit in 2019. And it is the area, as far as I understand it, it's made the least um, progress. And, you know, we've had other industries in the past that have been highly lucrative with Various trade secrets and so on. Yeah, you know, think of pharmaceutical drugs, and we end to end up putting patent laws in place that gave people a limited monopoly of those before things became generic and could be copied by others.
1: Or oh, even in the, even um, in the online world, right? Microsoft antitrust legislation because they were you know they yep. were dominating uh, PC software with uh, Windows and all yep. the software that went with it. They were forced to crack yeah, that. The, in.
5: The Internet Explorer and another example is the chemicals industry, which wasn't really effectively regulated before the 70s. Highly profitable uh, and it was killing people. And so governments came in and said, sorry, uh, we're going to get involved. We're going to impose some standards. We're not going to let you do whatever you like because the effects on society are too dangerous. And now chemicals, you know, they're still innovative. They make less money than they used to. Um, but the world hasn't fallen in. And that's the the way forward for these social networks as well.
1: Thinking about the news media, which is, I guess, my particular area, I mean, they fell into this problem of platform dependency. You know, Facebook became so huge, they needed to have their content out there. Mark Zuckerberg tweaked the algorithm to say, no, more stuff in your news feed from friends and family, less news because it um, doesn't turn people on as much. Just that little fall mm. caused a, a, you know, a, a huge spasm within the media financially and attention-wise. This can't have been a secret even 10 years ago that this was going to be a problem that regulators would need to tackle one way or another.
5: I certainly didn't understand the way it would play out in terms of the the kind of social consequences of it. Um, The big problem for the media sector, in my mind, was that the control of the advertising dollar went away, right? The classified ads in the newspaper industry just vanished. Um, pretty quickly. And and as for the share of mind thing, people don't want to see news content. The providers are always going to shift the the algorithm to produce something else and it also relates back to our previous conversation about extremism right you know fair balanced journalism is probably good for democracy but it turns out that the way our brains are wired it isn't all that good for keeping people repetitively scrolling on their feeds Um, and you know the the interaction of that with the news media is just an unfortunate and irrelevant um, side effect as far as the big platforms are going
1: I wonder do you fear in the end to go back to where we started that sensible restrictions on the internet for the public good uh, are going to be difficult are going to be caught up in you know kind of cultural and political sometimes even party political battles about free speech
5: they might be in in the global environment we're in a bit of an info war uh, as we speak you know and I think that what's bizarrely what's happened in the Ukraine has helped to highlight that Um, The Russian state for quite a long time has made use of um, some of the vulnerabilities of this social media environment to intervene in other countries. And they seem to have an agenda um, to say, well, we can't ever win a a head-on confrontation with liberal democracies, but we can use these systems they're built to undermine their social cohesion and their political cohesion. And so that's a kind of risk that I think people are waking up to, and are starting to get grips—not with how to solve, but at least to be aware of. So I think, in particular, you know, that cultural stuff is often like, "I've got free speech; I don't want someone to tell me what to say." I don't think we have to. We—the problem isn't when some person chooses to express. Um, random view X that I might or might not disagree with. The problem is when the systems amplify it in a way that then creates social divisions that weren't necessarily there. So none of that is new. What is new is the way that these um, media systems fasten on to the most controversial and polarising views and then just keep serving them up in a way that draws people apart from each other. So I think if in New Zealand, if we can look at the reforms that we might be contemplating, things like the hate speech law or whatever it is, and go, it's never about stifling anyone's individual commentary or thinking. It's about saying, how do we create you know systems of law and regulation that we do in every other media environment um that can tackle the the systemic propagation of this stuff um for how we deal with these kind of online user generated content systems that have kind of grown up um without the law keeping up that was
1: Jordan Carter, the outgoing chief executive of Internet NZ, who was in Paris three years ago when the Christchurch Call was signed. Now, he's stepping down from that role after nearly 10 years, a decade in which the Internet's had a huge effect on our media, as well as our public life. And next week here on MediaWatch, we can hear more from him about that. Last Thursday was budget day, and as usual, the media went into overdrive as soon as the embargo lifted, and those reporters were let out of the lockup. And when the dust had settled, the spin off's Toby Manhire addressed a sideline issue with fellow
3: podcaster Bernard Hickey. What were the snacks like in the lockup? Did they provide snacks for the hard working men and women of the press gallery? I'm on a (laughs) diet. Died at the moment, and uh, so I'm not allowed to um, oh, no, partake.
1: But they it. look good, the sausage rolls. Uh, apparently there was someone oh, in the press gallery oh, who, who was going to go for eight. It was some sort of record uh, profligate sausage roll eating thing. One unnamed reporter going the whole hog that day reminded Media Watch of a pre-budget breakfast described by TVNZ's Pikey Sherman recently on the podcast Inside Parliament.
0: There was a mighty fine spread going around uh, this morning at the breakfast. Hash browns, sausages, eggs, you name it, it was on the plate.
1: On that day, Mikey Sherman's gaze and her cameras was on the finance minister.
0: You know, as you are with a television journalist, you're waiting for the minister to, to get his breakfast plate and to take a bite, especially when he says that the core focus of this year's budget is going to be, wait for it, health. So I'm thinking, all right, you know, the cholesterol's going through the roof. Let's go. <laughs> Give me the pictures that I need for my health story today, minister. And he didn't. He he didn't he refused to take a plate of the full breakfast. Now, what kind of kiwi in their right mind does that?
1: One with an egg allergy, Mikey Sherman explained to listeners afterwards. But while she didn't get the ironic health-related pictures she was looking for that day, she didn't get the funding for Māori health that she was expecting in the budget either. Describing the annual $42 million budget for the new Māori Health Authority as shocking and dismal, she said more in this week's episode of Inside Parliament.
0: I mean seriously, you promise this game-changing Māori Health Authority and then you show up with $42 million a year on top of the status quo? How is anyone supposed to expect major change with that? I I think that's really well put. Blows my mind. Yeah, no, it's really well put.
1: Coincidentally, Budget 2022 had almost the same sum for boosting Māori media content over the next two years, in spite of the fact that a rejig of publicly funded Māori media has been underway for almost four years now and still hasn't seen the light of day. We'll look at that in a minute. But the centrepiece of the government's strong public media programme is that not-for-profit public media entity. Now, not-for-profit is not the same thing as non-commercial, and the big unanswered question so far has been just how much will this new entity have to hustle for advertising to break even, and could that compromise the public service mission set out in its charter? Well, that depends very much on how much public money will go into the new public media entity. This week, Budget 2022 finally revealed that the public media entity will get $327 million from the public purse in its first three years from 2023. The government said that this was funding certainty for quality public media, and it is a lot more than public media outlets get from the public purse at the moment. But is it enough to provide public service content on all platforms? Right now, RNZ gets around $48 million a year and TVNZ currently makes around $300 million a year in TV and digital advertising. And the costs of some of the local programmes it screens are covered by public funding via New Zealand On Air. So what will be the balance of public and commercial money bankrolling the new entity? Well, the Minister of Broadcasting and Media, Chris Farfoy, declined to be interviewed on MediaWatch this week, but his office answered our questions instead with a statement. It said the government will provide around $200 million a year, or about half, of the entity's estimated operating budget. The minister's office told Media Watch that will ensure it can meet its public obligations in the first three years. And on top of the $109 million a year for three years announced in Budget 2022, there's $51 million per year that currently goes to RNZ, plus small amounts for TVNZ and parliamentary services how the balance of that existing funding will be provided, which is about $40 million a year, will be decided in Budget 2023, the Minister's Office told Media Watch. But Budget 2022 also says in its fine print that the government anticipates the new public media entity will make a surplus of just over $300 million over its first six years. That's about $50 million a year on average, and that's a lot more than TVNZ ever makes in profits these days, So does that then mean that the public funding for the new public media entity will fall if that sort of commercial revenue is forthcoming? Well, the Minister's office told MediaWatch the new entity's precise financial model will be finalised as it gets established, but the government does expect that the entity will make significant commercial revenue in the coming years, but it had to estimate what the surplus would be for the new entity over its first six years for Budget 2022. Now, Another unknown is how much public money the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air might put into the mix – The budget estimate for the Arts, Culture and Heritage vote show that the New Zealand On Air budget will reduce in 2023 by $12 million, possibly a sign of things to come as more money goes to the new entity instead to fund its own content. So the numbers aren't quite clear yet, but after months of behind-closed-doors planning, some meaningful numbers for the new public media entity are at last in the public domain. Now as we mentioned earlier, publicly funded Maori media have also been under review for a long time now. The Māori Media Sector Shift Review was launched in 2018 by the Māori Development Minister at that time, Nānaia Mahuta. Now in 2019, she recommended things like a one-stop shop for Māori broadcast news that pleased very few people in the sector, including her own Deputy Minister, former broadcaster Willie Jackson.
3: I'm on record of saying, hang on, how come Pākehā got all the uh, news bulletins and Māori always have to rationalise that? I stand by that, you know.
1: But after the last election, Willie Jackson took over as Māori Development Minister and started the whole process over again by appointing an expert panel to rethink it all. And on TVNZ's Marae show last weekend, the host, Mariam Akamo, put Willie Jackson on the spot about that.
0: The Māori media sector review, shift a uh, shift review rather, has being timed to release with the budget. Can you tell us anything about that? Um, it's been a lot of work. It's been a lot
4: of work. And I've worked in tandem with uh, public media, with Chris Um I... Um, I'm really happy with what our team has uh, done and I think our people will be happy. Anything I can't you can't say yet? too much about the budget. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
1: well, in the budget this week, there was a boost for Māori media, $32 million to Tamangai Pāho, the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency, and $8 million to Whakata Māori, Māori Television, over the next two years. Now this was mostly for new content reflecting Māori language, culture, stories and perspectives, but also iwi media collaboration and news and current affairs, and the development of a workforce strategy. The Minister Willie Jackson told the New Zealand Herald that there will be more details on how this will be spent next week, and he praised the experts he'd appointed to the Māori Media Advisory Group for getting the funding boost across the line. But so far, all this sounds pretty similar to what was in Budget 2021, which allocated $42 million over the next four years for the same sort of things. Now, back then, the advisory group chair, Dr Ella Henry, talked about all that on Radio Wātea, and she was asked this question.
0: When will your report
4: be handed to the minister? Uh, We are due to do so in June. So the... Clock is ticking, um, you know, I shall be thumping away on my laptop tonight, um, but uh, we're excited to be part of what we see as, as a new direction for the future.
1: But almost one year on from that, there's still no sign of that report on Te Pune Kokori's website for the Māori Media Sector Shift Review, almost four years after the review was first launched. This week MediaWatch asked Dr Henry, who's also an associate professor at AUT's business school, will the funding boost this year and last year solve the problems in the Māori media sector and what's happening with that strategic review of Māori media.
4: I will always applaud additional funding towards anything in Māori media, and I am sure you're aware a number of Māori production community representatives were saddened that Māori organisations and TMP did not get equal support out of the COVID funding during the worst of the lockdown period. So I do hope, and I genuinely believe, that this additional funding will go somewhere way to rebuilding capacity that has been damaged by the last few years of the virus.
3: The announcement does feel like deja vu in a way. Last year we had 40 million for the Māori media sector over four years. This year it's 40 million over two years. Last year, I think that you told uh, Watia News, uh, Radio Watia, that you were tapping away on the Māori media sector review, which you were carrying out there. Do you know what has happened to
4: it? We had a limited term tenure which which came to an end in June of last year officially. Um, We were all invited to continue our involvement. Unfortunately I had to uh, abide by the original contract because I was so busy. So I actually um, retired from the advisory board for the minister at the end of July last year. I know that they continue to meet for many more months after that. I have not seen a report as an outcome although the original report that we put in before the budget last year was successful I believe because we had argued for the additional funding much of the policy development is contingent upon what's going on in the wider media community Uh, combining um, Radio New Zealand and Television New Zealand that's going to have implications for Maori media and Maori broadcasting I can see why the report may have been delayed by uh, bigger decisions that were going on in other parts of the media.
3: I guess the the thing that I'm a little bit confused about is is how this $40 million of the extra funding, and last year's uh, other funding announcement as well, is going to interplay with the reorganisation of the sector. Is it going to be spent differently, or are we actually just going to see a continuation of the same funding bodies and the same organisations?
4: that parts of that funding will go into some of the newer and more innovative broadcasting and media strategies that are open to Maori storytellers in the area of gaming, in the area of digital um, VR, you know, utilisation of platforms like Twitter and Facebook and TikTok to tell stories in different ways ways all of which is being done in a very small way now but with additional financial support could provide really useful entryways for Māori into broadcasting and media.
3: The press release on this funding announcement they say a lot of it's going to be going to this sort of new media details of how this 40 million dollars are going to be spent are being announced next week apparently what do you want to see in that announcement?
4: Well, my my ideal scenario would be that there are equal portions of that funding allocated to the big ticket items, like getting more large scale Maori film and television productions funded suitably. So that's a, a high priority on my wish list. The other is that uh, uh, more is put into training and professional development and training and support for Maori practitioners. And that third uh, wish list on on you know my my hopes is more opportunities to fund the kind of creative storytelling in new, completely new platforms. And I say this as somebody who I know it gets bagged a lot, but I think that TikTok in particular, but Facebook also, are really interesting places for people to experiment and play around and be innovative. And so Maori are already present on these platforms doing fabulous things. So they could also get a little bit more funding. What Tehiku are doing amazingly with their app around language acquisition and news dissemination. Those are the kinds of new platforms that I think also could do with
3: a real financial boost. What about iwi radio? This is a uniquely Maori uh, platform in a filling this role that no other outlet's really filling and they're running on the smell of an oily rag and have been for ages.
4: As I said I mean I, I think what Ku Media in the north are doing is absolutely fabulous. Their app that they've created the the platform that they've created for uniting iwi Radio is is really innovative and far reaching and they've done it with very very minimal resources so to be able to extend on that work is is amazing but you look around the country at the different iwi channels and more importantly the urban Maori ones in Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch because they have a wide catchment as well and they could all desperately do with better funding for a more cohesive approach to news delivery and dissemination to improving the infrastructure and hardware that they're working with to upskill and train further, you know, the next generation of iwi radio journalists. So the needs are many, but I have to tip my hat to what iwi are managing to achieve with what minimal resources they have been able to uh, make use of in the past. And I'd like to think that a chunk of of improved funding is going towards them as we move forward.
3: Yeah, that's the big problem, the big issue with Māori media, right? And it's been the constant complaint uh, that there's not enough putia, money, funding. We've now had 80 million extra in the last two budgets. Is that enough? it's pointing in the right direction
4: and I want to make sure that that is distributed equitably and fairly that the that the administration systems for application and for delivery of those resources is done in a robust and rigorous way and a fair open and equitable way because it is a very useful contribution an extra eight million is it parity? Well, no, not if we look at the last 50 or 60 years of broadcasting and the way it's been funded. But is it contributing? Yes. So I would prefer to focus on the positive, because there are so many more reasons to be negative at the moment. I'd prefer to focus on the fact that this put here of $40 million has the capacity to make a meaningful contribution as we move forward, because I know the caliber of Maori who are working in these organizations. They're extraordinarily skilled, they're committed and passionate about the kōpapa they want to see the next generation thrive. And so whilst we've got this wonderful storehouse of Māori talent, we just need the resources
1: to keep their initiatives flowing. That was Dr Ella Henry, former chair of the Māori Media Advisory Group, talking there to Media Watchers Hayden Donnell about the budget boost for Māori media and the long-awaited Māori media sector shift review. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media in midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.